I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. And we have, but we have just Eddie. It's Kevin Sauer. Needed to France. Eric Murray. It's Mahe Drysdale. It is Sir Matthew Pinson. Thank you for being here. I'm Alex Del Sordo with Rover's Choice. And this is another podcast. Now, I love doing this. I talk to someone new every every single week. And uh, here is someone that I've actually not really had a conversation with. However, he was on the shores watching his team beat my team <laughs> all the way back in the early 2000s when I was over at GW. Yes, it is true. Wrote at GW. And yes, Michigan beat me. It was a heartbreak. But I have Greg Hartsip, the men's head coach of Michigan. Uh, Greg, thanks for being here, man. Thank you. My pleasure. We love to so, talk rowing. <laughs> <laughs> that's this entire podcast. So. Uh, my first question, I ask this to every single person. Um, how old were you and where were you when you had your first rowing stroke? Tell me the story. Okay. Yeah. You know, fall of 1986, my freshman year of uh, college, I was planning to walk on at Grand Valley State and planning to walk on the football team as a place kicker. And the night before my official tryout, I broke my ankle playing pickup basketball at the field house. <laughs> so an opportunity went out the window. Um, the season went on. I was in a cast all fall. And about the time I came out of the cast, um, a guy who lived on the, my dorm floor across the hall from me was on the team. And he dragged me to an indoor practice as they were um, just coming indoors for the fall. And so I never took a stroke until the spring. Uh, I did all the winter training. And I think at some point in there, I knew that I loved the sport. Like, I, I didn't know why, but I just liked the people and how the, the, the work ethic. And it was the first time I ever done a training-based sport. You know, I'd played uh, others like football and baseball. But, um, I, you know, I... I really enjoyed that aspect. At the time, we had Model A ergs. Mo most people don't remember those, but those. Holy shit! Old... <laughs> you'd row, and you know, you have to stopwatch the the tachometer as it was ticking up, and sometimes a fan blade would go flying off. And hold on, hold on, hold on, Greg, 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 you are so old. <laughs> you are so old. Wow, the Model A. Now you're at Grand Valley, so uh, like, okay, so I had Grant, uh, John Van Carey at Marietta for one year. I went to Marietta for one year. He was there at Grand Valley. I actually don't know who the coaching staff was back in the '80s and '90s. Who who was your head coach then? Well, a guy named Brian Brewer, who was the so the Grand Valley program was dropped in '81 from a, being a varsity sport, '81 or '82, and. Just a few few people stayed around and kept it alive as a club um, after having been the first varsity sport for something almost like 20 years, close to 20 years. So, I, you know, he was one of those guys. And it was just a really fledgling little club because nobody knew how to run a rowing club. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, this whole experience at Grand Valley being – uh, you know, it just wasn't a very good, well-run organization. I'll just say that. 
but because it people were making it up on the fly. And at the time, club rowing was just, I mean, it's hitting its boon, you know. It, some some clubs started forming in the 60s and 70s, but the real surge in club rowing came in the 80s and 90s. And so people were just trying to figure it out. And I learned a lot about, to be honest, how not to do things in a program. Um, but yeah, it was a very uh, small group of people. We just had a couple fours of guys, a couple fours of women. The university at the point was pretty small. And because of that, there weren't too many people on the team. It was actually Grand Valley State College, and then it became university later. But um, So then you're, you're, so you're in the 80s. It's like you said, the surge of club rowing is happening. This is you're, you're rowing until like the early 90s. Men's rowing at the national level started to build, right? That's when you started to see speed uh, at the national level. Um, what did you do after Grand Valley State? Did you carry on on, on a national team level at all? Because there, there just wasn't a lot of guys doing it in the late 90s in America. Yeah. Was- well, you know, at the time, Chris Korzanowski was the, the technical director and the head coach and you know, we lived for these updates because I was trying to make the national team, though I did it, I was never successful in it. I, I was learning about the training. And, and to be honest, Corzo's stuff that he would put out was really educational. And I don't think too many current coaches and rowers realize just how influential Chris Korzanowski was to our current culture because a lot of the leaders of our sport pulled from his knowledge. And, you know, that's, that was a foundation of my own coaching. I know Mike Tatey talks highly of, of Corzo. He was very influential on Mike and a lot of the other coaches who some of our have retired since, but his approach to like basically coaching the country. And it was, it was just through, literature because we didn't have internet we didn't have you know cell phones at the time it was you you lived for these publications that came out like every two months you know or maybe every month and it was sent to you in mail and you look through it all and and then pull from it what you can so that's 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 crazy to me i mean that like think about access to education today right like the young coaches there's no reason for them not to be good at what you're doing. Like you were waiting every two months <laughs> to learn about what not to do or what to do. I mean, that, that's wild to me, man. I, I, had, I love this because I had no idea that was the case. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, no, he, he, he was so influential. Um, he does get a lot of credit, but I, I don't think people really understood just like how influential he really was. So no, I can't imagine. No, I'd be like, well, you talk about culture and you talk about like how people train today. So much of it was, is based on this 80s, 90s education, like learning, like education, like the coaches that I had came from that era, right? And then I just did what they did, right? I brought what I did with them to when I was coaching young kids in the mid 2000s. He is extremely influential. So you said that you tried to make the national team but it didn't work. Um, I went to a few camps. Uh, one of them was coached by Jim Dietz and Sean Fedak at the Coast Guard Academy. 
Um, and Jim is was a mentor of mine as well as a friend. Um, I, I coach within his he, the All American camp that he has with Mark Wilson. Yeah. Um, in the summer, sometimes Mark was at the at one of those camps as well that I was at. So, um, but yeah, it was that time period. The late eighties was, was where a lot of growth was happening. And my coaches at Grand Valley, another guy besides Brian was a guy named Jack Line. They didn't really stay in the sport too long. Um, and so, and you get this, they helped you get the program prosper, but you know, we yeah. just needed to take that next step. And John Van Curie was the coach that came along and did that for GVSU. Oh, I mean, big time. Like the, the number of athletes they had that turned into to the national team, the Olympics, it's, I mean, they, they went to Henley for God's sakes. I mean, like whoever thought Grand Valley would go to Henley <laughs> and actually be competitive too. Cause I, I was there that year. They're pretty competitive. Um, so, you know, you, you find rowing, in my mind, late in life, right? Not a master, but you were like, you know, you, you've already done basketball, you've done football, right? When did you decide coaching was your career? Like, at, how old were you when you said, that, that's what I'm doing for the rest of my life? Well, you know, you asked the question about my first exposure to the sport, and that didn't come until spring break and taking actual strokes on the water, wooden oars, wooden equipment. We actually raced FIT because it was in Melbourne um, and we got hammered and I called it over the head crab. And, but I think it was during that time period, I was like, okay, I don't know exactly how this is going to fit into my life, but I knew that at some point, like rowing was going to be a part of my future for a good long while, uh, mm -hmm. even on that trip. Cause I just loved everything about it. Um, but I, really it was, I got married fairly young my uh my first wife was a rower at Grand Valley as well that's how we met oh, wow. and then um she went to graduate school at the University of Michigan which is not far from where I grew up and so she um when she she moved out we both moved down um I I was still training in a single and then the coach at the of the Michigan program a guy named Will Brewster at the time he uh, asked me if I was interested in coaching the freshmen. And while I had done some coaching at Grand Valley my last couple of years as an undergrad, because it was so clubby that rowers did coaching, mm -hmm. um, I, was I really looked forward to this, being able to sculpt a group of guys and prepare them for championship racing. And um, he, he resigned at the end of that year and I was hired as the interim and it, it was really at that stage I was thinking, okay, I think coaching is going to be my, my career and um, fairly early on. That's very, that's, I, that's actually very early on. Um, yeah. I was 25 at the time. I was, I wasn't much older than the guys on the team. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, I, I, and, and you just, and you, you stayed in the whole Michigan. Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. I want to, I want to talk about that. I have another whole topic for that. Um, so you wrote, but you, so you wrote for a handful of years and then you just moved into the coach's launch. Right. So really, you really didn't row for more than four or five years. Right. Yeah. I mean, roughly five years and then started coaching. Yeah. Now did you, did you compete, um, like, so Greg Meyer was, it was my coach, uh, at GW and yeah. that guy's a, that guy's a, 
fucking animal. And he would do some of the erg pieces with us. Um, yep, yep. I got a funny Greg story. I'll tell you. you got I know you know Greg. I got to tell you the story. So it's the first month he's coaching us. And this is, we're a brand new, like to him, we're a brand new team, right? We had 14 guys in the whole squad. And I'm on the last erg inside the boathouse. And we had to do an hour of power to sort of like end the season, right? And he says, you all, we need a boat average of under 145. And like, that's insane, by the way. Like we're a pretty new team. Like GW really wasn't that fast. And he sees us all dying. Like we're blowing up. He picks up the stairs that you climb up to get the boat and hurls it across the room. Goes, I'm just going to do it. He takes his shirt off in jeans and does an hour at a 144 in front of all of us. And we're like, this is the scariest human being we have ever come across. Like the dude crushed all of us. He beat all of us. And we had this, this sticking memory, obviously, like many years later in my life. I still remember that day. Um, but Greg, I guess my point is he still trained. He still rode. He did all the competitions. He did the head of the Schuylkill, the head of the Charles. Did you do that too? Did you, did you carry on? Yeah. I would sometimes compete against the guys. Um, I used to do a thing as a way to inspire them over winter, the semester break training that I called hearts of Hallard Hallard day hour, where we would pull an hour piece and then whoever beat me would get this t-shirt and, Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. And usually, you know, the better guys would beat me, but I, I, I would, I would be okay. You know, I would go sub 150 or so on it. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I would, I wrote in my single. In fact, I would say the more I wrote in my single, the more I started understanding rowing and I could, I could transfer that into better coaching from the coach's launch. Do you, do you suggest that? Do you, did you, do you suggest that to other young coaches that they should, yes. they should do that? You know, yes, I do. Um, I think the tendency for young coaches, at least for me, I would go to the U S rowing conventions and sit in on the seminars given by experienced coaches. And I was look, was always looking for the magic phrase, right? The, the phrase that you could tell somebody that would instantly make rowing make sense to them and they would become a better rower. And while there is, the language is important, how you craft and create visions in people's head with your language, I, I began to realize I needed to understand rowing at a, a, a deeper level, like how the system worked, how the hydrodynamics worked, you know, how, how man you know athletes interacting with equipment and each other all needed to fit together and that rowing in a single taught me that like taught me how to how, because I was experimenting with my own methodology and things like that so yeah I, I definitely think so it, there's more to it than just the magic phrase you know there's you, you have to you have to really understand it and uh, so yeah, but getting in a small boat will help any athlete or coach do that for sure. I like that. That's I'm gonna I'm gonna highlight that because that we 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 tend to draw certain things from. We're searching for the, the magic phrase, so to speak. Like <laughs> yes. in our podcast, we want we want the nugget to get someone to come and listen in and, and learn. Um, all right, I want to shift gears. So 
you you're the founding a founding member of ACRA. So yeah. um, th- th- this is a major topic and to me because I think something's happening in the sport of rowing again that happened when when you that so tell me briefly a short history of the founding of ACRA, why you did it, and when when did that happen? Sure. So I built my initial the 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 architect, you know, the framework for our team, even as it exists today, was built by attending the IRA. And for the kids in my program in the mid 90s and late 90s who latched on to this, it was all about how well we're performing at the IRA. And we set very, very clear like goals for being there. And this drew a, a higher caliber of athlete into the program, guys with bigger goals. And as a result, it attracted more people like that. And I'm only telling this part of the story because we started doing pretty well there. You know, in 2002, we finished sixth in the Tenike. And then the next year when Harvard and Yale came, we finished seventh. And then there were half of the years, you know, we were kind of always in the petite final. You know, we, was, we were pushing to make the final, uh, which, which we fell short of, you know, a couple of times. But um, this was, so we were trying to do some groundbreaking. And as a result um, of, our, of our success there, um, I think some people are aware of how this all went down, but probably a lot of people are not. So our success there was starting to influence the coaching circle and the, the sport as a whole. And a few coaches lost their jobs because they were cited as losing to us. And um, but probably the thing that led to ACRA's formation was our exclusion from the IRA, which became, uh, which was, that ca- was catalyzed by the Rutgers program being dropped to varsity sport. And the, in the uh, media at the time, when it was announced, the reason that was cited by their athletic director was, well, what's a, it doesn't matter if they're a club sport anyway, they could just go to the IRA and beat other programs like Michigan does anyway. And so at the time, the coaches that were leading the IRA, and I had gotten at that point heavily involved with the IRA. I was on what they call the good guys committee, which was the seven coaches, because some people don't realize originally there was a five school stewardship for the IRA of Columbia, Penn, Syracuse, Navy, and Cornell. So the coaches and ADs of those programs, and then then upon invitation, a Pac-10 coach, and then a a Dad Vale slash ECAs and IRC coach, which was me. And so I had been on that committee for like five years, and I would do like the seating, and we'd set up different rules and stuff. That all, in combination with other roles that I had, sort of gave me the insight, here's how an organization needs to work better. You know, again, it was some of the flaws of the organization that, of the IRA at the time kind of I could identify with. So when it came time and those coaches were, 
some of which were my friends, you know, a few of them are still around, but um, a lot have retired. Um, they were very, they felt bad about kicking the IRA, the club schools out of the IRA, but they were doing it in their mind to like save the sport because if Rutgers was going to drop men's rowing, they saw that they are at risk themselves if they if they were to lose to club programs like some of them were doing. So in the fall of 07, it was about this time of the year, actually, the, we had a meeting, the annual IRA meeting on Penn's campus. And we're all sitting in the room and it was a, a topic on the agenda. And at that point, the, um, the director of the meeting, the Penn uh, AD at the time, asked all the coaches of the club sport teams to leave because the conversation was going to be had among the stewards and the varsity programs. And we, there were man, probably a dozen coaches in there. I know Chuck Crawford was there. John Bancuri was there. The other uh, coaches of the, of the club teams at the time. And so we were led to this library where we all were sitting around and we knew what was being discussed, what, cause it was on the agenda. And it was really in that room there, literally as the IRA, uh, varsity coaches were making the decision to exclude us that the formation of ACRA happened. It was, <laughs> the two were happening li literally at the same time <laughs> because we, and my whole thing was my, my kids need a championship to prepare for that is good and quality and keeps them working hard. And because that's what the program was built on. So we talked about how this was going to work. And then a few weeks later, we got on some conference calls and we had it really all drawn out by early January. A couple of friends of mine, many people know Bob Jogstetter from Tulane, a former national team coxswain, but Bob was really involved with the CIRA oversight. And he, he wasn't at the meeting, but we started talking about how great this would be. So it took some time, you know, the, the things that we were banding about there is how do what sort of events do we offer what what's because I was more of the mindset of like an in sprint model where you have a 1v 2v 3v you know you have a freshman eight etc and I didn't deal with the fours and pairs and things like that even though that was great at the IRA um, for for us that that model was a real reason why we were gotten pretty good at a program but there was some compromise and eventually we sort of settled on what like the olympic model if you will of event offerings and uh the point system and how team points because that was the other thing that my team was built around really was winning the men's team point trophy so that that needed i, to I, I am so fascinated i am so fascinated by this this is wild to me and i look i've been in the sport not nearly as long as you like i i was born in 85 okay so put that in perspective <laughs> uh but like I'm, I'm i didn't know that there was this private meeting among the ira coaches and they said hey listen and i know there's some of your friends and some of them were my coaches and say hey go over there 
you kids go over there. We're going to have this other conversation. And John Van Carey and you, and I'm sure a number of the coaches that I've known for years said, we got a better idea because you're right. You, your program and the others, they need a championship, right? Um, so we're in this point in our, in our, in, in, in rowing now that the IRA has been decided by the same three schools since 2008. So Wisconsin was the last team to win other than these three schools. And you know the schools. It's the same ones over and over and over again. There is talk among coaches now in the IRA level. This is select group people talking like, we need to do something for the other 12, 15 schools that are racing because it's the same three over and over again. It's, it, they, they need a different model like the NCAA. I'm convinced and I'm not, I'm not a decision maker here at all. I just support rowing. Um, I'm convinced that we needed to, to adopt a completely different model, which is what you did in 2007. Do you agree that there needs to be another change among rowing? Well, yeah. Um, if, if they're going to have diversity now, to be honest, I mean, that, that diversity at Acro, I mean, my program has done pretty well there. And I don't know if the event offerings have had the effect on diversity, but what we did do is left avenues for programs who didn't have the numbers, the, the, the number of athletes that we did to actually become good. And so, and, and I can see this happening at the IRA. The, to, to me, the, the hating back on is that era where we were at the IRA, the, the 96 to 2008 time period. It, it was just so much fun, you know, just, and the thing that's different now is besides the three big eights and, it, you know, freshman rowing has been eliminated for a number of years now that most current rowers don't really have a memory of what freshman rowing was. But, you know, as Mike, as Tate would, would commonly say, it was harder for him to win the freshman eight at the IRA than it was to win a medal at the world championships in eight. And because of the depth of competition was, it was very, it made it very challenging. And so, but that same slate of events was offered during that time. It was the 1v2v freshman eights. You had varsity four, you had the straight four, you had the pair. Um, you know, there were a few lightweight events and it was, it was, so, it was just it was a lot of fun, you know. But the one thing we did do is we expanded to sculling. Now, sculling, acro sculling hasn't what I would say produced the best scullers in the US. It still tends to be a mishmash of top kids from smaller programs and like my 3V or 4V and, you know, just, just whomever's kind of going there. But it, it's nevertheless an opportunity for for kids to, to row. And as a result, I think the compromise that we came up with with ACRA, Ac, so ACRA is prior to the pandemic, the second largest collegiate regatta in terms of com, com, competitors. And it was, on a trajectory to overtake the dad veil, the dad veil having lost some schools due to NC2A shifting and qualifying uh, regattas. And so 
but the pandemic kind of shut that all down. Um, but it still has that opportunity to grow. And so what happened is these smaller programs who are learning how to better structure their programs in part with some of the education that I've been trying to do with them over the years as to how to better run their, their organizations. They've gravitated towards those events. And as a result, those events have filled up. And that's what allowed more participation to happen. That's, 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 I've, been, I've been preaching this from the mountainside is I don't necessarily think that we need more championships, right? I think you still need the IRA. I think you still need the NCAA. You still need like who is the fastest eight in the country, but you need more opportunity for grow, for rowing to grow itself. Like it, rowing doesn't just affect the person who wins the IRA. It changes everyone else's lives that, that row, right? You just need more opportunity. Um, and, and, and with your background of starting this ACRA, um, it's an interesting hearing that story of, of it is interesting because I think it's actually happening now in another way. And I don't know what the new division is going to be. I don't know what the big change is going to be. If, if I had a decision, I would say NCAA, rowing becomes an NCAA sport, period. Like that, well, that's I know I there's a proposal on the table for an, to become an NCAA sport. I, I don't see, and I know I have this conversation with a handful of IRA coaches and some agree and some disagree, but I think if you want the sport to grow itself, I think you need the support of that larger organization behind it. Like you, you're not going to do it with a bunch of guys, you know, in, in, in a, in a, in a library at Penn. <laughs> no offense. I just right. think you're going to do Exactly. Uh, I got, I got this, my last question for you, and I'm so excited to hear this answer. Um, I said before the start of this that there's only a handful of coaches that have stayed at one program their entire career. And, you know, it's the, it's the Harry Parker, BB Bryant, Chris Clark, you know, we talked about this. Um, I look at your career and you found a lot of success at Michigan, but I also think that the, the, the average human being just wants to keep going, 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 right? Like they want to get to the top level. They want to get to a fully funded NCAA program. Why have you stayed at the men's club level your entire career? And why didn't you go after, say, the big paycheck at Texas or the big paycheck at Yale? Like, why stay there? I mean, this is probably not the answer you're expecting, <laughs> but because I got divorced. Um, wow. My, yeah, yeah. My, my, my boys were all small. Um, my youngest son was just a year old and my ex-wife and I decided to divorce. So uh, this was 2006. This was all happening at the time that the IRA was kicking the clubs out and ACRA was formed. Um, and uh, I didn't want to move out of their, my boys' lives. So because one of the clauses in my divorce was you know, if one parent decides to move, the other parent gets full custody. Dude, well, first, let me let me let me take a step back for a second. That is the most honest answer I could have possibly gotten. That is an incredible thing for you to say. I got choked up because I got three kids and I know that I wouldn't go anywhere other than that one place that they were at. There's no way that I would leave my my kids no matter what. So and then for you to be going through so that's getting, the same decision. Now, at the time, I was I really loved and still love coaching in Michigan. Um, 
So there are worse places to be than stuck in a job, stuck in a job that you love to do. So it, it really wasn't. Uh, and yeah, you know, I had gotten some coaching office offers, people reaching out, asked me to apply. Um, and I, you know, I always had to turn them down because I wasn't going to move out of my boy's life. So, I, you know, that's the basic reason. But the other thing is I really like, I, I, I grew up around here, but Ann Arbor is an awesome town and the university, despite the ebbs and flows of what university administration can come up with sometimes it's it's all pretty good and then i like i like being involved with acro and teaching young college club coaches sort of the the methods that can work because uh, I, I have probably dozens of conversations every year with coaches and if nothing else, we commiserate, right? But um, the, the, because it's just a different landscape, every so often I get a coach who just maybe they rode at a varsity program or even come from overseas and are just unfamiliar with how a student-run organization, how, how different it is. And I was in that, I was in that scenario at Grand Valley, and I know the frustrations that they – they have you know the the thing that i've always said is so in a in a university as a club team goes you're part of the club sport department and club sports are the lowest priority within rec sports and rec sports as a as a department is the lowest priority of student life and student life, which in most places slightly structured slightly differently from place to place, but it, they oversee like housing and the unions and dining, all that stuff. That's the lowest priority rec sports is. So, and then student life is the lowest priority of the university's larger umbrella, you know, as they look at the academic side and all that. So you're the lowest priority of the lowest priority of the lowest priority within the university. So because of that, things tend to be structured by the university to basically avoid lawsuits. I mean, they essentially, the oversight that they give is based on don't get us sued. <laughs> and so there's a lot of frustration with that. And the fact that it's the students are empowered and this is what I've, I've, I've always drawn the parallel between U.S. rowing and our national team with collegiate club rowing. There's a lot of student empowerment. And in U.S. rowing, there's a lot of student, you know, not student anymore, but athlete empowerment. And particularly in the way the landscape is, it's being drawn currently right now. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes coaches have a hard time dealing with that, dealing with students, because in a college club setting, administrators intentionally go to the students for either advice or how, how to structure things and get things done within the university. 
and coaches are often excluded intentionally because their their vision is well we want the students to make the decision and fortunately here at michigan um, they see a different way of doing that and the coaches are included and we have authority over a lot of things and primarily they've recognized that there's a benefit to having a coach here overseeing it if for no other reason a safety reason and they recognize that the safety reason trumps every other reason on their philosophy you know it's not the tiddlywinks club where you're sitting at a table playing tiddlywinks you're on the water people can drown people can get hypothermia people can get injured by colliding boats you know so they saw that from a risk management perspective there's a value to to having a coach and we're actually in discussions with ACRA right now as to how to expand and educate the rest of the country administratively on the rec sports level so that situations like what happened at Iowa State this past spring and Northwestern a few years ago don't happen anymore. So there's a, well, there's a huge gap. So you, you said something earlier, you said the most fun time was between 96 and 2008. Like yeah. time was awesome. The coaching coaches were in their thirties and forties they, they were following Chris Korzanowski's, you know, leadership, but they were also, they've been doing this for a while. Now you're seeing a new breed of coaching coming in that are in their twenties and thirties that don't know anything about running programs and guys like you not putting on the spot. You're just, you're, you're at a point where you're starting to retire. Right. So all that education needs to be soaked up and given out. And you said that you, you talk to coaches all the time and are consistently dozens of coaches we see on our side that not a lot of coaches are reaching out to the older generation for advice and for opportunity. Um, so I, if there's anything that I can do to push that education platform on Acra, please tell me what I need to do. Cause you're right there. It's, it's completely lost after yeah, your yeah. generation. There is a smaller number of people that really know how to run a larger program, not just at the collegiate level, but at the high school and club level down, you know, like at the junior level too. Well, and even at the national team level, I mean, this is our country offers our biggest strength as a, as a nation is also our biggest weakness, in my opinion. And that's freedom. We have a lot of freedom in this country. And it's a great thing because it provides opportunity for people in our country. And I, I really like Mike's Mike Tady's uh comment uh, he made a number of years ago his biggest competitor is wall street and there's a lot of truth to that people who have elite potential and this this bleeds on down to the collegiate level and everything they're siphoned off by the opportunity to make money and start their careers you know so and our country is so vast geographically and we have a large population it's a unique beast, the U.S. I mean, this is why people from other countries often come here and struggle because the people have freedom. They don't have to buy what you're selling. <laughs> and it's so spread out and there's just so many 
things that can pull a, a good talent away from you that they struggle with Americanism. And um, so the coaches that are coming up, you know, to tie it all together into a vast system, it, it's going to take a, a, a person administrator who is willing to sit down and talk to people and find the, the compromises and the commonalities and bring it all together so everybody's on the right page doing the, the, the same thing towards the same goal. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, the newer coaches, I, I, although I will say this, uh, Alex, is I have a lot of faith in youth. I mean, I come from, I come from a very small town, 500 person town. And I will say that they, let's just say they're out of a more conservative leaning philosophy, sure. but there's a lot, a lot of talking down to kids these days. Kids these days just don't have any discipline. They don't want to work, blah, blah, blah. And, and I will say after coaching 30 years of, of college people, I have a lot of faith in youth. I mean, I think they've, they've learned to communicate at a level that, that older people of my generation and, and older have not learned to communicate with, that um, th they just, it's different. And because it's different, they tend to get uh, chastised a bit more. But um, I, I, I have a lot of faith. The, the, the kids that are coaching this, this day, as long as we can keep them in the game, that's the thing. I mean, coaching talent is siphoned off just like athletic talent, right? We'll, we'll be okay. We'll be good. I, man, Greg, I got to say, this, is, this was like not the, not the conversation I thought we were going to have. This, is, this, was, this was fantastic. Uh, and what's funny is um, I know that I can have a part two, three, four, and five with you. I mean, there's so many things that I would love to keep talking about, but in the interest of time, Hey, we got all winter. <laughs> this is what rowing coaches do this time of the year. We get to sit around and <laughs> I want I want I want to end with you saying one piece of advice for a young 20-something-year-old coach who's just starting this spring this winter. What's one piece of advice you want to give him or her right now? If you want to develop that vision of rowing, a better rowing stroke and teaching. I think how you choose, how, how you develop your teaching ability, spend a summer or even a couple weeks of your summer and go uh, and be an assistant under a coach running a national team camp or uh, another, a good coach running, running the team, be it for selection or what, and just watch. You know, probably the times that I learned the most were in those times. Like I could actually see drawn out over the course of days and weeks what the co how the coach was trying to get to where he or she wanted to be at the end. And so, and just the language they used, the drills, how they tie the, the drills into the language and piece drills drill works together to 
highlight concepts that they're trying to get across. You get to see see that in motion. You can we're having conversation. You can pick up stuff from seminars, but it's a different thing when you actually in the launch with them. You know, so because probably the the camp I learned the very most from, to be honest, was the '96 or '7 camp that was being held in Elkhart, Indiana, of all places. And at that camp was. Well, Chris Clark was coaching the under, it was the under 23 pre-elite team. Yeah. Uh, Chris Clark was running that team. And there was Paul Cook was there from Brown. Yeah. Justin Moore was there, a uh, former Williams coach, Syracuse coach. Um, Reichman spent a stint there. A uh, um, few other coaches, Tom Sanford. And and, and they, we'd take turns coaching. And just whatever the, the thing was and so at that camp actually was Volpenheim uh, as an athlete and a number of guys who Sebastian Bea uh, went on to win Olympic medals within the several years after that and, and that to me that couple of weeks that I spent doing that like it was it became the cornerstone of my coaching to be honest I mean at that time I'd only been in coaching for three four five years and I was doing okay. I mean, we won some medals at the Dad Bell and a few other places, but um, it, it 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 set me down a different path watching other coaches do their thing. And so that's yeah. my advice to any young coach: go spend time while you can before you start having kids, <laughs> and you can't and you can't just jet off for the summer. That's the time is to do it when you're in your twenties. I you know I, I I wish I was I wish I was 25 again. Because I just go out and I'd find some guy to go be with and and, and learn. Greg, thank you for this. Uh, I know that we're going to be having you back, but everyone tuning in and listening or watching this, you know how to get a hold of Greg in this podcast somewhere in the link somewhere. You're going to see a way to get a hold of Greg over at Michigan, and I'm sure he will answer any and all of your questions. Thanks for tuning in, Greg. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. See you. Happy training. I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. It's Kevin Sauer. It's Mahe Drysdale. It is Sir Matthew Pinson. Thank you for being here.